Hey everyone, welcome to Spawn Camp. Every week I get together with my friends and we chat about all the games and media we love and especially all the positive things that set them apart. I am Tony. I'm a graphic designer based out of London. This week I am joined by two wonderful guests. We have Angel. If you want to say hello. Hello. I'm Angel. I'm a game programmer and a developer, I guess, in Florida, in Mount Dora, Florida. And also we are joined by the illustrious Oak, if you want to say a little about yourself. Oh my god, illustrious. That I will get used to. Um, hi everyone, my name is Oak. Bit of a mixed background, I guess. I'm normally a teacher of the deaf by day, but I also head up community things at London Spitfire. And I have a background in games design story development. So, ta-da. That's convenient. That's handy. What could that be useful for? <laughs> and that is segueing directly into what our main topic for this show is going to be, which Oak brought up recently and I would love to have him on for was kind of just general storytelling and narrative in games and maybe more generally media, but kind of like what makes a good story? What are the different tenets of like how narrative is defined? And also just, you know, how does it shape us and our culture? That's kind of a headier topic to get into. So before we dive into that, I would love to know what the both of you have been getting up to. I'm okay. So I, I'm actually reading an audiobook about game narrative like game storytelling which is funny so i guess that counts that's media it's not like you know fiction or anything it's like one of those it's almost like a self-help book but for making story in video games i forgot the author now but it's on audible and that's because i'm working on a game jam game which i try to do at least once a year uh, game jam is an event where a bunch of developers get together and over one weekend they try to make a video game and it used to be a way for me to get experience and meet people and do all this stuff. And now it's a way to get over creative burnout. <laughs> so I get like two kinds of burnout, which is physical burnout, which I've had since 2012. And I'm working on that one. But then there's also creative burnout, <laughs> which is like at work, if I'm doing like a bunch of computer science-y type stuff, even though I'm in a game engine, usually at work. I, I'm not, you know, necessarily, I don't feel like I'm, you know, placing characters and weapons and making a video game. And sometimes that's frustrating. So what I like to do is like at least once a year, I like to make a video game. So I'll update you on how that goes because it's like a week from now. But my friend and I usually we like have some dev friends that we like to get together with and make these games and kind of ahead of the game jam, we've been talking about, you know, some stories we, we might want to tell or some mechanics. And it's just it just elevates my entire life just to have like a discord up where we're like, hey, what? why don't we make a game like this or that? And yeah, game narrative has been a big part of the discussion. So I guess that's what I've been up to. I mean, that puts me to shame. That's like really hard to follow on from. My time has <laughs> no. not nearly been so constructively used. I've been enjoying a very lovely six-week summer holiday because it's the summer holidays here, so I've been taking a break from teaching children. But what I've been picking up instead and what kind of inspired me to kind of reach out to Tony with like a, hey, games and story design, is I really got it into my head after reading the Grisha series of books, which was recently... Oh, I love the, those. The first book was turned into Shadow and Bone on Netflix. I'm a little bit in love with that. I was inspired to kind of write my own story. Um, not with the hope of it ever being done, you know, turned into anything, but... uh yeah, so I, I kind of, like I used to at university, kind of sitting down recently in the last few weeks and trying to plan out how does my world come together? And it's the sort of very surreal experience that this world literally only exists in my mind and it could be quite maddening in some respects because I'm trying to sort of justify rules and cultures and systems and societies that, you know, 
<laughs> they don't exist anywhere except my mind, which is probably where they're safest. So that's been really, really fun, like trying to map out how the language is going to work in, in this kind of fictional universe that I'm writing and what's the history and how did things come about and what's the relationship between certain groups and how does their history impact their cultural psyche and, you know, their prejudices and, you know, the things that they like, the things that they don't like and what does that mean in relation to this group of people or this group of people and, you know, what things there are, are taken as perfectly normal and, and what things stand out as being really weird and so, like, it's been this monumental task of, like, just trying to make sense of a universe and by working out its rules and its systems and making sure that they're consistent and that they make sense. See, I thought you weren't being productive. That sounds incredibly productive and difficult. (laughs) I've got nothing to show for except for like the the maddening scrawled etches in several many notebooks of being like, yes, but then the trees at night, they come alive. And it's like anyone else reading this be like, he's very clearly lost it. Summer holiday is not being useful for him. You should write it in code and like leave notebooks around. Could you make like in runic, just exactly. leaving spells all over the place? That's definitely what I need to do next. It's a misnomer to think that you have to do anything productive with your time off as well. Don't ever feel like you have to turn that into something. Your time is not meant to be commodified. Do not give yourself over to the bourgeoisie. Wow, you sound just like my therapist. I also wonder, you know, how much of that storytelling is truly existing within the vacuum of your mind. You know, we always, whether consciously or subconsciously, pull references from existing cultures or from existing peoples. You know, why are all dwarves Scottish? It does Because <laughs> <laughs> they sound great as dwarves. There's all these different things that we think are like, you know, we're doing this thing because, you know, it makes sense in our world. And it's like, mm. there's probably little bits of our reality bleeding into that as well. Yeah. As far as the small amount of stuff I've been getting up to, because just as you fear this question, Angel, I too <laughs> feel pressured to like, maybe I should be doing stuff so that I could have something different to talk about. I recently was contracted on to do some designs for an esports org that I'm looking forward to that I'll hopefully be able to talk more about, but they have a really cool design side that I'm excited to explore some. And part of me doing designs and doing stuff for freelance is just putting on garbage movies in the background to catch (laughs) up on. A lot of them usually from like the 2010s and and mid there, because I just didn't go to the movies that much. So I've been catching up on a lot of garbage. Let me think. I watched Elysium from 2013. Oh, God. With Matt Damon. Another Matt Damon film that I watched was The Fantastic Mr. Ripley. It was encouraged to me because every time I tell people here in the UK my dog's name, which is Ripley, they're like, oh, like the talented Mr. Ripley. And I'm like, no, he's named after the character in Alien. And they're like, oh, okay. And so I finally watched The Talented Mr. Ripley. And honestly, fuck everyone who thinks that he's named after that. I'm offended because the character in that's a sociopath that murders everyone he meets and is in no way a kind-hearted or anything. It's just the only thing is the name association. So it's like, why would I name my dog after this serial killer sociopath? What is wrong with you? (laughs) So yeah, that revelation, I was just disappointed that people were like, oh, you named your dog after this? It's like, absolutely not. No, he's a good boy. (laughs) Uh, Yes, but I would say that that story in that film was lacking. I would love to get into some stories that you all have as examples of very impressive or ones that you think are, you know, really setting the medium apart and are things that we should emulate. Crikey, that's a tough one. 
That is a tough one because there's so many different kind of aspects to that. I feel like my own kind of approach to the stories and games that I like come from a game design perspective in terms of like uh, like wanting to do indie games and, and thinking of games and mechanics because I, I program primarily. Games like Journey, I, I feel like this comes up all the time, but games like Journey or Brothers, another one we've talked about before, to me are an awesome example, not just of telling a good story in a game, but of using games to tell a story. And I think that's a really important distinction that I'd love to get out in front of this discussion, because I think the medium is really wide in that you can take something like Naughty Dog's recent games, right? Like Last of Us, Last of Us 2, (laughs) <laughs> we could turn the whole you know podcast into that. I, I swear it's not, I promise. I'll try not to even mention Last of Us 2 again. But basically, a, a game that is a movie, right? Like from the first Uncharted, I think Naughty Dog was like, that's what we want to do. We want to you know fuse games and movies. And they've gone down that path. And I think games are awesome at that. Either through cutscenes or really cinematic moments, they can turn the language of Hollywood filmmaking into the game's medium. So awesome. Mm-hmm. But then on the other side of the spectrum... And it's kind of what I'm more interested in lately, or I guess since the beginning, is how do we use the medium of games itself to tell a story in a completely different language than that of a movie, right? Journey tells a story, but it's an embodied story that is really simple and is told through the mechanics and through the player's own experience. That game has no dialogue at all. You know, there's some movies that do that. The beginning of WALL-E has no dialogue, right? And that's like a masterpiece. (laughs) But... There's something about the way games can tell a story in that regard that I think is really, really fascinating. So my examples will always be really simple stuff like Gris or or Journey. I remember when Wally came out, there was not only articles lamenting it, but a lot of discourse I remember from people who'd seen it before I'd watched it that were just like, I can't believe that the first however long doesn't have any dialogue. What a scam. What are they what trying to scam? do? Why Why would they consider this? And it's like, what? not only have people completely missed the artistic intent of that, but it's like, do you require beings or entities or characters to be speaking dialogue for you to view it as a story? That's mind boggling. I think as well that that really informs how narrow and linear our collective perception of a story has become. And that a yeah. story is something that's fed to us either by the you know medium of a book or a film and you then start to ignore the oral traditions of a story which are still shared but they're also held in a collective consciousness in a way and they are shaped by retellings of that story and they are things that are living and they grow as opposed to something you just consume and you ignore that you know paintings on the you know the wall of a cave tell a story it's not one that you know necessarily has lines of dialogue and a juxtaposition and a denouement and a subtle reversal at the end it's still (laughs) communicating that sort of essence of the human experience which is intertwined with storytelling and i think it's interesting with the wally thing because i think it touches on almost how lazy some people have become (laughs) with maybe not lazy lazy is the wrong word how narrow our definition of what a story is as opposed to how wide it really can be I agree 100%. And I think that has a lot to do with media. Because Mm -hmm. like you were saying, like books have been a huge part of, you know, media consumption for a very long time. And then I guess relatively recently, it was like radio, which is still one way you're being fed information. 
Then TV, which is one way you're being fed inf- uh, information. Video mm-hmm. games, to me, being in, in that industry, I feel like helps to widen it, but plenty of games are that. You're mm-hmm. just playing the game and you're being fed information. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a super good point. And I've actually never thought of it that way, so thank you. Okay. <laughs> that, you're welcome. That, that twist of, of, you know, oral storytelling has a ton of interaction in it. Because I'm imagining, you know, people sitting around being told a story and my memories of that are from like grade school and someone's telling a story and you kind of jump in and you're like, well, actually the way it went was this. And then you kind of like collaboratively tell a story yeah. and you can find something like that in D&D, like tabletop games, almost, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of work together to tell a story. I think that's what appeals to a lot of people about those. Mm-hmm. There's some games that are really good at that. One thing I wanted to mention, at least a little bit is games that don't appear to have a narrative at all, right? Is there a story in The Sims? And at first it's like, well, no, right? Like no one actually wrote out like, what is the story of The Sims? Like I couldn't tell you what the story of The Sims is, but anyone who's ever actually played The Sims, they can turn around and tell you the story of their Sim, right? And that's the whole point of that game is like, it's a dollhouse. So you get to, you know, make your little story and it can unfold dynamically And then it's still storytelling. And I find that so interesting. Like The Sims is probably one of the most pure forms of video game storytelling. And yet, I don't think people normally think of it that way. Hmm. Yeah. I remember a lot of the journalistic discussion around when Media Molecule's game Dreams was coming out was like, this looks pretty. This looks interesting. I have no idea what it is. What is this game? Is it a game? And there was such a barrier on the perception of like, can a purely artistic model create its own stories and create its own storytelling? It was so, I want to use lots of big words, but I should just be like, it was myopic. It was just really small minded to look at something as explosively expansive as dreams, where it's just pure creation and pure storytelling and be like, what is this? How will this actually make anything where it's like, this is the the clay of creation. You can make anything with it. I think as well, it really touches on the interconnectedness of stories and storytelling, but also stories from like a historical perspective as well. Because you look at myths, for example, myths is the great stories and, you know, they are the inspiration. I know we want to talk about, you know, the monomyth in Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey a little bit. Yes. But they really come from... The early stories, which are myths and myths that, you know, explain great battles and great heroes and great stories, but also how many of the ancient civilizations were also linked by their myths. Like you look at, you know, treating the Bible and the Bible stories here as examples of living myths in terms of stories that still have significance for people who are alive. The stories in the Bible, like Noah's Ark, for example, the concept of a great flood and that how this flood is heaven sent or divine sent with a, an aim of retribution and to wipe away and to renew. Ancient Babylon has an exact same flood story where their god sends a flood and someone is instructed to build a boat and to survive it this way. And it's not to undermine the events in the Bible, it's to accept that there is shared human stories and themes. And I've no doubt the narrative that ends up being transcribed in the Bible is in some way informed by the civilizations that were present in that corner of the world at that time. But ancient China similarly has a great flood narrative. And so there are these key parts, these key sort of narrative devices almost, the flood, renewal, rebirth, destruction, 
that crop up throughout history and link societies together in ways that, you know, almost trace like the footpaths of trade routes used to. You can just follow them back and then see where the stories go. That stuff's so fascinating to me. Like mm. the there's always this kind of creative journey that people who enter any medium go through where they figure out that there is no such thing as a truly creative idea. Mm -hmm. And you go through the stages of grief about that. Yeah. (laughs) At first, you're like, well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something completely original. And then you realize that's like impossible. And you go through a state of like depression, like, can I ever make a truly unique idea? But then you come out of that journey and you go, wait, that's a good thing. That's super cool. Right? That's like shared language. Like, if I can tell a story that's a twist on another story, then people Mm -hmm. can bring in their conceptions of that and you can use that. And I think it's fascinating games definitely do that not just in story but like in genre like how many like if it weren't for doom would we have you know all the shooters we have today it's just it's fascinating to think about it's true and you're right there's that sense of like oh there's nothing original left like what what do i bring to it as a creative person actually you're right it's it's nice to know that there is an almost an ancient framework that actually just resonates with our species and actually it's, it's okay to tap into that i think the biggest revelation for me was when i was at university and my one of my lecturers was like pocahontas and avatar are the exact same story like avatar yep. is just space pocahontas and i was like <laughs> fuck like it is it's just space pocahontas it's the exact same story and i was like it blew my little mind i was like oh no like Wingapo, don't forget ferngully yeah, yeah. <laughs> And what's important is, that's okay. That's I had a okay. good time. Space Polyconquitus was fun. I always get really annoyed, and I think it's probably my own bias, but I always get really annoyed when there's an overtly religious theme in a story that I'm experiencing, or music that I'm listening to or something, I'll be like, along for the ride. And then if I realize, like, oh, this is just the story of so-and-so or whatever, I get irate i remember i watched (laughs) mother by darren aronofsky and i was like this movie kind of doesn't make any sense and sort of sucks and then i looked up the actual you know what he was going for with each story beat and stuff and it was just like this is creation and this is god making and i was just like i extra hate this movie now because it's (laughs) just it's just taking all of these things and repackaging anytime there's like a christ allegory and something it always just kind of undercuts it for me not that there's like ways to do these without necessarily referencing this stuff because all of the religious things are necessarily referencing other story tropes but just when it's like super overt i always just kind of like you know, roll my eyes at it. Just like, I, I wish this was anything other than what it's being right now. It's, it's funny how often those things appear and it's like, of course those narrative devices exist in biblical stories because they are timeless narrative devices. And it's, like you say, it's it's, it's all being connected. It all links back. Like none of those stories are inherently original. They all have been found to be referenced to much older sort of texts and religious works and stories and parables and stuff. And it, kind of really blows open your mind to like how old human civilization is like there's this idea of like the human era calendar like it's on Kurtzegaard where they kind of insist you should definitely trace human history from like 12,000 years ago so the year should be like 12,021 for example instead of 2021 because you know when the ancient Greeks and the Romans were around doing their thing discovering philosophy the pyramids were ancient by the time that they were around and that's like what do you mean they've been around for like 5,000 years by the time that Socrates was like doing his thing? Like, that makes no sense. But it's like, it's utterly mind blowing to be like, oh yeah, they were ruins for people whose civilizations are now ruins to us. And it's just, it's cool in a way that those narratives continue to, to find new ways to be told and new audiences. And, you know, I'm not saying necessarily I want Bible video games and shoot 'em ups, you know. 
I don't not want that. That sounds not that bad. Yeah, <laughs> Revenge of Christ 3, The Cross. Well, they like to do the side stories like Cain and Abel. You see that all the time. Yes. Or like that that's kind of the that's the hipster move now, right? Like you're you're a director and you have to have a biblical reference. That's all art, right? So <laughs> So instead of going straight for like the like a Christ parable or a Genesis, you go for, you know, like a Cain and Abel or or a um David and Goliath story. You tell something like a little different. Old Testament. That's the OG. Oh yeah. This is reminding me of the kind of swap from, you know, you have storytelling tropes and you have certain beats that that get hit over and over again. I think it's Shakespeare was history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And you have that every so often where you see like these stories repackaged in different ways. And there's a soulless version of that that's been happening a lot more where it's not necessarily taking a story beat or a story reference and repurposing it, but just stating that thing as a reference and kind of leaving it purely as that. It's been deemed, I've seen in a few videos, of just called intercontextuality, where you're incorporating something as an idea purely for the fact that that idea is something that is known, and that is the extent of its incorporation, like Star Wars. It's a huge one in Star Wars. Yeah, Star Wars has done it a lot in like The Force Awakens where they're just like, there's the Millennium Falcon. And now you feel better about this movie because you <laughs> like the Millennium Falcon. There's these things that keep happening and I won't talk about it necessarily, but the most recent Space Jam is basically intercontextuality, the film, because all it is is just references to other things without any soul behind that reference and without any story repercussion for that reference. It's just like, here's the thing you recognize there's a dopamine hit in your head, and now you're going to like this thing a little more because you recognize stuff in it. It's very weird, and it feels bad. It's the emoji movie. <laughs> that's, like, almost too literal, right? It's like, well, you yeah. guys will type with these, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely true. And I think the creative process is interesting in that, like, there's little bits of truth there, right? Like, nostalgia is powerful. Like, there's really cool stuff you can do with it. And referencing previous stuff and, and a shared collective like is powerful and there's cool stuff you can do with that. But of course, some people are going to use it wrong. And also to steer this to video games, right? I wanted to talk about the motto myth and the hero's journey since we, you know, we kind of promised we would. Mm-hmm. So this book I'm reading specifically talks about the mono myth and the hero's journey because you have to with anything with narrative. And all of the stuff we're talking about with no original ideas, the good side of that, where it's not just inter- Uh, contextuality is when you get down to like the soul of it and the soul of that often is the monomyth and what's interesting about it and joseph campbell joseph campbell yeah who who kind of started this whole idea is that it's actually kind of recent and what he did was he wrote this book where he said hey i'm looking back at the thousands of years of myth we have and i noticed something and he kind of wrote this book then people didn't immediately start really taking it into like to heart until star wars is one of the big major ones because they started interviewing george lucas and he said oh i was referencing campbell Mm -hmm. very much when i made my my movie and star wars is really and this book references star wars like almost too much because it's the perfect example since that's what uh, george lucas was doing is like he took this distilled lesson of the hero's journey so just to give a quick overview right or actually would you like to do the honors, Oak? Would you like to give an overview of the hero's journey? And then oh I want to talk about how it's a little different in games. There's like one yeah. interesting kind of point about it, but take the floor. I'm I'm happy. I, I have to say, 
Although Joseph Campbell's analysis of myth and uh, had some problematic things with regards to the representation of women and the role of women within myths and stuff, taking them within Definitely context, I, I love the concept of the hero's journey because it's tried and it's tested and it's kind of fun and it makes sense. I'm, I'm happy to kind of talk people through the, the basic step of the hero's journey. And as I'm kind of going through these points, you'll definitely find like commonality, like with films that you've read and books, you know, you think about Harry Potter or The Hunger Games and Katniss Everdeen and their journey. These are the, you know, Frodo and Lord of the Rings. Oh, once you've seen it, there's no going back. Once you see the pattern, every movie you see is like, oh, where's the, you know, where's the, the mentor guiding them into the upside down world? And then, oh, there they are. So you've, it's depicted in several ways. It's usually depicted as like a circle, a split in half. So you've got the ordinary world at the top and the special world at the bottom. And there are 12 steps, roughly speaking, on the hero's journey. So at the beginning of the, the journey, you begin in the ordinary world and you're living your life and everything is fine. And then something happens to your ordinary life that calls you to adventure. So Prim's name is picked from the reaping ball in The Hunger Games or Frodo comes into possession of the Ring of Power. So there's a call to adventure. There's some reason why they've got to leave their ordinary life behind. Often the hero, they will refuse the call. They won't necessarily want to go and they have to be coaxed or persuaded to go on this epic mission. That's when they meet their mentor. So you're meeting Gandalf or you're meeting Hamish or you're meeting Hagrid, for example. And then they cross the threshold. And sometimes it's a literal threshold into another world. So Harry Potter going through the platform nine and three quarters, he enters the wizard world. He, he literally goes through a barrier. Uh, Katniss Everdeen arrives at the capital, for example. She crosses the threshold. As you enter this special or other world, there are tests and allies and enemies. And these become apparent to you. You work out the lay of the land. Then there's the approach to the impossible cave. So there is a rising tension in your story. You must overcome some great barrier. There is a great ordeal. This might be the big, big boss, the person at the end. It's fighting Voldemort after the game of chess. It's eating or threatening to eat poison berries at the end of the Hunger Games and surviving that ordeal. And then you enter the steady climb back into the ordinary world. There's reward for your trials and tribulations. You seize the sword, you get the reward, as it were. Then there's the road back, and you're different for your time in the special world. You're not the same person who left their home and refused the call to adventure to begin with. In some instances and in stories, there's resurrection. The person literally comes back changed by their time. Uh, they are a different person. And they return to the world with sometimes a special item or a memento, something that speaks to their time in this other world. Or it can be more recently like implied experiences and your character has changed. Katniss Everdeen returns to District 12 with a, a, a partner, but in a cold relationship, a performative one, with a much sadder view on the world for seeing the games and the intricacies that it plays. And she is not the same person who left District 12 as when she arrives back there. And in that, you end up back in the ordinary world. And so this is this analysis by Joseph Campbell is done by studying thousands of myths and, and stories and legends and what have you. And so these events are not within every single story by any means. But I think if you look at, you know, books that you've read, films, anything, you will recognize the hero's journey in those bits of narratives. And those are the basic steps. There are different versions of it, but those are generally speaking, there's the ordinary world, there's the special world, and it's your refusal of the call, the transition and how you are changed and the challenges that you face. And then that reflection of the end of who are you when you come back? Because your character, your hero, should not be the same person as who left 
initially. And that's the story is their change through that journey. I love hearing it because whenever I do, I'm like, man, this really does apply to games. (laughs) Yeah. Like the special world is usually, you know, you can think of it as the progression of levels and you have the final boss at the end. It just like makes a lot of sense. And I was one thought I didn't have until I was listening to you just now was actually how similar like Pokemon, the first Pokemon Mm -hmm. is to the hero's journey. So like the, the route around, wow, actually from the beginning, Pokemon is like a perfect example of the hero's journey. It is. It's a really good analogy, right? You, well, you don't refuse to call to action. And that's something I wanted to mention about games, but you, you know, you're given this introduction of like, you know, choose your first Pokemon, you fight your rival, your rival is Mm -hmm. like an archetype and you kind of go around the circle of the whole map. And what's great is you come back at the end to Pallet Town. Giovanni is like the first guy you meet in like the town just above. So the fact you come back and he was kind of like the big villain and you kind of fight him at the end. You like, there is a moment in Pokemon where you come back to Pallet Town changed. You're like a Pokemon master now. Yeah, you've got all this experience you've grown. And also your mentor is there, you know, in every Pokemon game, you are greeted by the professor. Exactly. Their literal mentor and part of your call to adventure is their initial quest that sends you out from home. And Game Freak hasn't killed him yet. I think they're cowards. They need to kill the professor in one of these new ones. Oh, not Professor Oak. I feel personally invested (laughs) in Professor Oak. (laughs) Well, yeah, well. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's something that fits video games very well. It's something you'll find in a bunch of video games. And that's kind of a two-way street. Like the fact that you are the hero in a video game makes it perfect for the hero's journey. So I think there's a lot of kind of natural adaptation to it. But then also, video games have always been made in the context of film. And since film has always had the hero's journey and and kind of explored visual narrative, games have always and will always sort of copy movies. But there's also some changes. And one thing that was really interesting about the book I was reading was that it gave a great overview introduction of this stuff. It also mentioned the three-act structure. That's kind of like a much more ancient structure and they play together right like the monomyth exists within the three-act structure mm-hmm. and to give a very quick summation of that one right you have you know the introduction needs to kind of show the stakes then normally the first plot point is the inciting action of a three-act play and that's right there in the monomyth too that is you know yeah. the kind of refusal and then the step over the threshold the second act is the longest that's basically the entire special world the second plot point that takes you from act two and three is usually that big climactic mm-hmm. kind of like that information, that battle. And then act three is usually very short. It's like the resolution. And what's interesting about a game is that unlike a movie, people who pick up a game, and this is like a huge contextual difference, they are not necessarily committing to sitting down and having the patience to watch the entire thing start to finish. Very few games, and it's almost depressing when the stats come out, very few games are actually finished by the people who buy them. Even linear games that are fairly short. There's like a shockingly small percentage of people who actually complete the games. And you can see that with like, look up any game on like the PlayStation Store and you can look at the percentage of people that have trophies. There's usually like a, you beat the game trophy. The percentage will be small. Like you'll be shocked. And one side effect of that when it comes to creating video game narrative is that you kind of have to skip the introduction. Sometimes. And it's really interesting looking at the counterexamples, but that's one of the reasons that the hero almost never refuses the call to action in a video game. It's because you don't have a lot of time. You kind of need to get someone straight into the action. So it's really common to have uh, in media res in a video game. 
which is the concept of like you jump straight into the action and you kind of work backwards. One really good example is I think 2013's Tomb Raider. So in Tomb Raider, you actually start right at the crash of like the ship and you end up on the island. So you start in what would be act two, like you play the game and in 90 seconds you're in the special world. And that's actually super common for a video game because people are booting up their game to enter the special world. (laughs) You can't like keep them from going into it. But then the game has all these little cutscenes and it sort of builds an act one. So by the time you get to the resolution in act three, you've kind of been given both acts. And that's difficult to do, but it's something games often have to. And media res is something I realize I I notice a ton in movies and in TV shows that I absolutely hate, where they will do... <laughs> it can be done wrong, for sure. Yeah, they, they're all, most often done wrong, I feel like. And, and I have mixed feelings about frame stories, but where you'll be, you, you'll dive into like a TV show or a movie, and it'll have some explosion or something and everyone's dying, and, and then it'll be like six years earlier or whatever. It doesn't matter what the yep. next thing is, but it'll be like... An amount of time previous to this, and I hate that, but I'm realizing that so many games do that, and because of the structure of games, yep. it makes so much more sense. And it's tricky as well, because like you were saying, Angel, a lot of the narrative devices and storytelling devices in games comes from film. It's, it's the nearest reference point for right. communicating narrative. But that also, I think, is almost in direct opposition to the nature of a game. A game is a played experience. It's not a consumed experience. Yes, you are led through checkpoints and certain bits, and you have to reach certain things, and you have to get there eventually to progress the narrative. But there is room to explore and to tweak and to look at different outcomes, which is why, although, don't get me wrong, I think some cutscenes and some cinematics are rendered utterly beautifully, and I think they're incredible. I find them the most lazy way of telling story because it's like when you read a really bad book by someone where they tell you everything (laughs) you know she was really tall approximately six foot two and she had to wear a long dress it's like okay so you've literally told me what this character looks like as opposed to showing me what this character looks like and it's the same problem with the cutscene is that you are telling you're showing you are not explaining and letting the person build up an image of it and i think you know, you go through all that thing of a game of being immersed in the world and being able to move around and engage with content. Suddenly to take the player out of that, stop their player agents and be like, these are the events that happen to you. This is how it goes. You have no effect on the outcome of this situation. Continue. <laughs> Sometimes that can be even worse if there's the video game trope of like battles you're supposed to lose oh, or God. things that that you can't actually overcome. Mm. And that is the, you know, the, the the pinnacle of removing player agency where they have given you the ability to overcome obstacles up to this point and then completely gauge you from doing it so that you either feel like you failed or that it just completely prevents you from actually exhibiting your will on stuff. That's actually a hero's journey artifact too sometimes because it's common, it's good practice if done right, to have a moment near the beginning where the hero comes up against something that they can't overcome so that when you come back to it around the hero's journey circle, you can demonstrate the change. My favorite example is actually Mega Man X, like the SNES Mega Man X, because you have one of those fights where you have to lose. And again, I agree with you. I think it's it's definitely overdone at least at this point. But in that when you fight, I forgot his name, like the the armored you know dude that you fight at the end of the game, And he comes down in like a mech and he kicks your ass like instantly. And one cool thing that they do in that scene is that Zero shows up and Zero like shoots him once with like Zero's hand cannon and disables him. 
So you as Mega Man were just getting your ass completely whooped. And then Zero shows up and is like, I am way cooler than you. And it shows you you're too weak to fight this guy. Zero is way cooler than you. And then the, the entire rest of the game is you growing in power, becoming Zero's peer and eventually being able to beat that guy. And I think, you know, it was it was well done in that case. And I've seen it done before. But uh, I don't know. I just want to talk about Mega Man. We've touched on a few different things. I know that we're getting to the end of our of our runtime here, but I was curious if, uh, since this was the topic that you brought up, Oak, if you had any closing thoughts of, of some, you know, ultimate resolution that you wanted to come people to come away with. Yeah, ease us back into the normal world, please. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> we've we faced our great challenge. We're now heading back home. We're going back to the Shire, <laughs> but we are changed. We carry with us a great scar. <laughs> yeah, the need to always look at everything as being in the moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say I'm, I'm a big fan of the hero's journey. When I've been working on my book, in terms of just sitting down and writing, you know, it's hard to jump into because, you know, write the first paragraph. Planning out my hero's journey, literally, who do they meet? Who's the mentor? Who helps them? Is really helpful, especially if you're trying to get into writing for the first time. Having that structure and that scaffold is really, really comforting. It also means that your narrative is going to be familiar to people, but it can also become a crutch, and there are lots of fun opportunities for subverting those archetypes. A really popular one that we always touch on in creative writing is Shrek. Shrek is the wonderful example (laughs) of subverting archetype. The hero is the monster. The prince is the bad guy. The princess kicks ass. She's herself a monster. And Shrek is a perfect example of the hero's journey but the archetypes are subverted, and that's fun. It creates a new experience for the audience that makes it stand out. And to this day, the first Shrek film is a standout in terms of comedy and writing, just sticking in people's memories in their psyche. So I think there's a lot to say about working with archetypes and working with them well and respectfully and not in a cliched way. I think there's also a lot of room to have fun and to subvert those archetypes and to turn them on them head. And I think the society we live in at the moment and the great changes that we see with the redistribution of roles within society and the expectations that we have on groups of people and all of that change and gives us a lot of room to revisit those archetypes and to rewrite those stories and to introduce a new generations of heroes that, while perhaps still answering the call to adventure and needing a mentor, are heroes that we maybe more now identify and maybe they go through different struggles that we can equate with now in the 21st century so i think that's one thing i want to close on and also i think one game as a kid for me that heavily subverted the archetypes and i should not have been playing when i was six or seven my my grandparents made very poor choices but it was a game called dungeon keeper by bullfrog which was worked on by peter molyneux so before peter molyneux the famous you know the grandfather of fable his first games bullfrog which was, this, I think, indie studio in the UK, was the Dungeon Keeper games. And it was a, a real-time strategy game where you played a, a guy who has a subterranean dungeon full of monsters, and you are besieging the heroes of the realm. You are the bad guy proactively trying to take over the realms of good and killing knights and wizards and fairies and dwarves. And for me, as a seven-year-old, was a you know, who grew up on fairy tales and, you know, Disney princesses. And, you know, I was clearly an undiscovered Disney princess. 
to suddenly play the bad guy and to build the dungeons and to have prisons and torture chambers and for it to be like, yes, kill the kill the good guys, get them, was fun. Yeah. I can tie people up and, and make them do my <laughs> bidding. Scenes where a seven-year-old with, like, this one demon called the Mistress, and she's basically in, like, in dominatrix gear, and I was like, that lady's wearing leather, mummy. She looks like she's having a fun time in charge. She's a modern woman. <laughs> Her mum was like, she was like, oh, this is probably not appropriate for a seven-year-old. I don't think it was. But, um, yeah, and it was that. And I think a lot of what you see within the Fable games is a really good example of really good storytelling. I know that we've mentioned it briefly, but, like, environmental storytelling, I think, is really undersung. Just oh, in yeah. terms of being able to look and walk through a world and for it to communicate the story. Again, it's not telling your your reader or your gamer what's happening. It's not, you know, the world was destroyed. It's how do you see that written on the landscape or on people's cultures or in the music that plays? Uh, how does it get represented in the textures that are on your buildings, for example? It's, uh, it's all communicating narrative in ways that are more ancient than word. It's going back to those paintings on cave walls. Is visual storytelling and environmental storytelling, and I think I could I could talk for a whole other podcast about environmental storytelling games. It's one of my favorite devices to use. So I mean, I'll see you all next week, maybe. <laughs> we should do a part two. I think it's there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> I appreciate you coming on and and giving us an overview of of different stuff that's inspired you, but also kind of just helping us to understand better, you know, what makes story you know, how the different stories that we're familiar with kind of define the the fabric of, of our daily lived experiences. And the thing that we experience most as, as we, you know, go through our lives, I think the thing that makes it kind of worth living is all these different stories that we experience, whether it's movies, TVs, shows, books, anything like that. It's rare to find someone who hates all of that or doesn't. Oh, you haven't been on the right Twitter accounts. or the wrong ones but yeah i'm hoping that everyone who's listened has enjoyed our our dive into that and i do plan on hopefully having a a second episode on on story and storytelling i think that there's plenty to talk about with environmental storytelling for instance the kind of backlash that environmental storytellers had gotten for making things too on the nose and then as we've gone through this pandemic it was like (laughs) no we weren't on the nose enough the amount of graffiti and and slogans that people have put up is is so blunt and so ham-fisted it's like we we didn't give them enough credit for being prophets (laughs) instead of making trite nonsense but that is a a discussion for another time so i I really enjoyed having both of you on if oak if you wouldn't mind letting people know where they might be able to reach you where would be a good place for them to to send you a message yeah, sure. The best place to always get me is on Twitter. So you'll find me on Twitter uh, at the Oaken Forest. Excellent. What a good handle. And uh, and Angel, do you <laughs> want people to reach out to you? Do I want? Well, <laughs> I'll leave that up to them. <laughs> also on Twitter at Angel Game Dev. Excellent. Not as good as the Okay. I need to come up with some like cool like I don't know. I'll I'll think on it. I spent a lot of time thinking on that. It was like underscore oak two three for a long time, and I was like, "Who even is that?" And then I was like, "Yeah, I want to welcome people to the forest, to the grove. Let's all get together." So I was like, "Yeah, come on over." I love it. Ooh, good stuff. Um, if you wanted to reach the show itself, you can always find us. You can send us an email at uh, spawncamppodcast at gmail dot com, and our socials, uh, Twitter and Instagram, is spawn underscore camp. If you would like to reach me directly for whatever reason to make fun of me. Uh, you can always reach me at Tony Ray UK on most things. 
And I hope you all have a wonderful week, and we'll see you back here next time. See you later. Bye. Thanks, guys.